our next guest is Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak Jacobson. He is one of the most sought after speakers today in the Jewish world. And he speaks to both Jewish and non-Jewish audiences and makes the messages of Judaism relevant and accessible for our modern world. Rabbi Jacobson was also the first ever rabbi to be, to be invited into the Pentagon, and he delivered a religious keynote address to the US military chief of chaplains to the National Security Agency in 2008. This speech came at a really important and a really difficult time because they were engaged in a war at that time. And the Major General Chief later said, we were broken, but Rabbi Jacobson helped us to find a light within our brokenness. Right now, we have seen a lot of broken images in America. Images of brutality, images of violence, images of organized crime, as well as peaceful protests and a need for unity and healing. Tonight, Rabbi Jacobson is going to talk about the current unrest and give us his views on the Torah, on his solutions for racism, equality, love for one another, and how we can empower each other and not be victims. Welcome, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you so, so much. Wow. It's an absolute honor to have you here. And this is an amazing time to actually be hearing your message and, and a really important time. I appreciate it so much. And it's a, uh, a privilege for me to be able to be here with all of you. And I thank you so much for the invitation to be here with uh, such a uh, incredible community, <laughs> literally speaking to the entire Australian Jewish community. And uh, I'm fortunate and feel grateful to be able to be here with you. I hope, we hope again also that you one day will be here with us in person, but it's amazing to actually be able to have you here and all be united from our homes and, and be able to learn from you. Thank you, thank you indeed. And uh, I've had the privilege of being uh, a few times for visits in Australia, in Melbourne and in Sydney, Perth and Brisbane and Surface Paradise. And uh, each visit uh, was incredibly moving, enriching to be able to observe how uh, you all created Sinai down under. It was always transformative. And now I think we have to be grateful for uh, <laughs> the Zoom technology or other technologies you're using to be able to connect so wonderfully and intimately to be able to stimulate each other, inspire each other, strengthen each other, listen to each other and communicate to each other and grow both individually and collectively. And I know that this event here this evening uh, was really uh, the grassroots efforts of 30, 30 communities down under, as you said, Sinai down under in Australia, who really came together with their rabbis and spiritual leaders and rebbitzins and, and boards of directors and, and activists and those who care, both rabbinical leaders and lay leaders to bring uh, so many of our brothers and sisters together in tonight's program and the numerous programs that will God willing follow subsequently. And I'm grateful to be able to be here with my friend Reb Nissen and all of the other distinguished rabbitsons and rabbis who addressed you earlier. It is uh, 6.40 a.m. here, I should say down under, uh, but here in quarantine in Rockland County, Muncie, New York. So it's early morning. The deer are coming out here near my home for breakfast. For those who are interested, I'm looking out the windows. The birds are finishing chakras. They just finished uh, a long series of chirping, beautiful symphonies and melodies this morning in uh, my neck of the woods. It's literally like a lot of woods here. So uh, we have uh, a little wildlife. And uh, I know by you it's evening. So we have the fulfillment of the biblical verse in Genesis, Vahi Erev, Vahi Voker, Yom Echad. We have morning and we have evening simultaneously. And I'm grateful for that too. It's an incredible opportunity to be physically so remote and yet spiritually so close. There's a famous biblical verse in Tehillim and Psalms, Hine matov umanoyim shevet achim gam yachad.
think we're experiencing a slight technical problem, but hopefully Rabbi... How Jacob good and how pleasant when brothers sit together. Huh? We're good? How are we doing? You can hear me? Yeah? Yep. Okay. So there's a famous biblical verse... How good and how pleasant when brothers sit together. And we have the famous songs on those words. Or etc. Other songs using the same lyrics. There's an f- interesting uh, expression used here that we don't find often in the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh. And that's the combination of two expressions, matov umanoyim, how good and how pleasant or how sweet or how delicious. How, in Yiddish, you would say how geschmack, how delightful. Because in life, very often, that which is toiv is not naim, and that which is naim is not toiv. That which is good is not necessarily sweet and delicious. And that which is sweet and delicious and pleasant and feels good is not necessarily good. If I can give a very uh, basic, brute example, let's take ice cream or cheesecake or babka or brownie, foods that I personally enjoy. They're delicious, at least to my estimation, they're geschmack, they're naim, they're very sweet. My sweet tooth enjoys them. Are they good? <laughs> Ask my nutritionist. I'll tell you that this is uh, horrible, destructive, delicious, but not good. What about spinach or soybeans or barley kernels or asparagus or cucumbers? They're very good. They're good for me. They're toiv. Are they delicious? Naim? I don't know. I'm not going to call them delicious. Somehow potato chips or black and white cookies are easier for me in terms of deliciousness. So very often in life, there are things which are good, but they're not necessarily sweet. And there are things that are sweet, but they're not necessarily good. And often the two are mutually exclusive. The better it is for me, sometimes the more discipline I need to be able to engage in it or to abstain from something that's not good for me. And sometimes the easier it is, the more delightful and delicious it is, the worse it is for me. But there are a few exceptions in life. And this is what the verse in Psalm says, When brothers and sisters come together, when brothers and sisters get along, when families are in unison, when communities are working together, when we are unified as a family and as a people, Psalms says, King David says, it's delicious and it's good. First of all, it's tov, it's good, it's productive. It leads to tremendously positive results. It's a good thing. It brings in goodness into people's lives and into the world. But not only that, it's also naim. It's delicious. It's sweet. It's geschmack. It feels great. It feels right. When? When brothers and sisters come together. And I found this always to be so true in life. You know, things that are good and it feels good. It's just delicious. It's delightful. And even better than a seven-layer cake or even a cheesecake, notwithstanding uh, the virtues, according to some. So that's the first and foremost um, thing that really moves me about this event. When so many communities in Australia come together to create or recreate Sinai down under, it's good and it's delicious. <laughs> it's matoiv and it's manayim shevetachim gam yachad. And really... It's the recreation of the first Sinai. Because the first Sinai, the Torah says in Exodus, that the Jewish people were at last unified by that historic mountain. Like one person with one heart. 
So whenever we try to replicate it and continue it and perpetuate it and recreate Sinai down under, in this case, in Australia, that prerequisite of coming together, Shevet Achim Gam brothers and sisters, is really amazingly inspiring. And my wishes and blessings to you, my dearest brothers and sisters, is that you continue this from strength to strength and only grow with it to bring more wisdom and more awareness and more love and more unity, more commitment, more resilience, and more connectivity and integration between all the segments of the Australian Jewish community. One of the most amazing and incredible communities in the world in terms of, in terms of its ingenuity, creativity, warmth, camaraderie, sense of responsibility. Whenever I visit Australia, I'm always startled. You know, we sit here in America and uh, everybody, we think we're the center of the world. And then you come there so remote and yet you've managed to really build such a powerful infrastructure of Judaism and Jewish education and Jewish communities with all of the aspects of community from birth all the way up. They once asked a rabbi, what's your mission statement? And he said, I, I, I hatch them, I hatch them, I, ma I hatch them, I match them, and I dispatch them. So a community that really covers the entire spectrum of Jewish life and chazak, chazak, v'nez chazek. And I thank the organizers for giving me the privilege of sharing with you a few words today. Let me begin with my theme that you have allotted to me, and that's the unrest in America. As all of you know, on May 25th, a black man by the name of George Floyd was killed by a white police officer in Minneapolis. He uh, had his knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds to be exact, following which Mr. Floyd tragically died. Uh, his funeral was now held in Texas, quite a grand funeral with many people and many escorts. But this uh, death, triggered an outburst of riots all across America. Night after night after night, riots, demonstrations, sadly and tragically, a lot of looting. Uh, many of the demonstrations were peaceful, but many of them turned into very violent demonstrations, beatings and looting and <coughs> burning property and stealing, etc. And this is obviously the talk of the town, not just here in the United States of America, in New York, where I live, but as you probably know, all over the world, even though in America it occupies tremendous space on the news and mental space because it's so close to home. And to be honest with you, for me, it was many for, for many, for me and for many of us, it was quite shocking and also deeply hurtful and disappointing. Because I think many of us thought that we will emerge from the coronavirus, from this pandemic, much more wise, much more blessed, much more unified, much more integrated, much more deep, much more authentic, and most importantly, much more loving. After all, the pandemic, which spread like wildfire over the last three months, taught us so much. And I felt that being in quarantine, each one according to their circumstances, notwithstanding the devastating tragedies, and I myself lost friends and neighbors and mentors and relatives, the quarantine accomplished a lot for many of us. It challenged us to redefine our priorities. It gave us the mental space and the emotional and psychological and spiritual space to reevaluate our relationships with ourselves, with our spouses, with our children, with our families, with our communities, with our God. It compelled all of us to rethink all of our paradigms. Questions like, how do I spend my days and my nights? What are my priorities? What are my dreams? What are my goals? How do I live my life? What is the purpose of life? Who am I really? when all of the external externalities and facades fall away? 
what do I do and how do I spend my time when all of the entertainment industries are on lockdown? These are good questions. These are meaningful questions. What does it mean to be married? What is really going on between my spouse and I when we spend 24 hours a day together in the same home for weeks on end? Who am I when I'm severed from all the attachments that usually gain my uh, distraction? These are important questions in life. They go to the core of what it means to be human and certainly what it means to be Jewish. And I believed, I still believe, that this did many of us very, very well. Yes, even for those of us which saw the challenge in it, and of course, all of us saw the challenge in it, but even those of us for it, it was very challenging. These types of challenges, if they're utilized correctly, you can create tremendous growth. They become an impetus and a catalyst and springboard for unprecedented personal transformation. But what happened more during the quarantine is that we all instinctively discovered our shared humanity. Somebody sneezes in Wuhan, China, and the planet is affected. Somebody touches a doorknob in Milan, Italy, and Australia is never the same. We realized how interconnected we are. We share the same planet. We breathe and inhale the same oxygen. What one person does in one side of the world affects literally everybody on the other side of the world, even if it's invisible. It demonstrated our shared vulnerability as human beings, and it really stripped us from a lot of the sophistication and the facades and the cover-ups of success, of prosperity, because the greatest billionaire and the most simple peasant, both were affected, even if differently, but both were affected. There was not a single human being from the 7.7 .7 billion people who was not affected in one way or another. Every sector, every industry, was touched and transformed, again, in one way or another. When was the last time that people in Baghdad and Tehran, Sydney, Brisbane, Perth, Melbourne, Surface Paradise, Los Angeles, Anchorage, Brazil, Peru, Moscow, Tel Aviv, London, and Johannesburg are all thinking about the same thing and talking about the same thing for weeks on end. Our shared humanity emerged in very powerful ways. And it's good for us because when we are vulnerable, two things can happen. One is we can wallow in self-pity or depression, but vulnerability can also challenge you to become real, to become authentic, to become honest, and to really surrender the false narratives of my life and your life and recreate a narrative that is much more authentic and truthful and intrinsic and essential and honest. And those are great, great blessings, great opportunities. It reminds me of the words of Jacob after wrestling with his uh, angel that night. You remember that mysterious battle in, in Genesis? Jacob wrestles with a mysterious adversary all night. And the man wants to kill him, but he can't. So he maims Jacob. He maims him. The poor Jacob's uh, sciatica is affected. His sciatic nerve is dislocated. He's limping. And finally, night is over. The long night of battle is over. And morning arrives, dawn arrives. And this mysterious man fighting Jacob, trying to kill him, says, let me go. But Jacob is holding on to him and he says, No, no battery. No battery. I will not let you go until you bless me. Wow. I will not let you go until you bless me. And I want to ask you, dear friends, <laughs> if somebody attacks you, God forbid, in a dark alley and fights with you all night, tries to kill you and then maims you, wounds you, what do you do? You call 911. By us, it's 911. You call the police. You run away. You punch them in the nose. Somehow you neutralize your target in any way possible if you can. The last thing I would do is say, wait, wait, wait. Before you go, I'm going to ask you for a bracha. I'm going to ask you for a blessing. A blessing? 
This guy is trying to destroy you. I will not let you go until you bless me. What type of ridiculous request is that? A blessing from you I need. Get out of my life. With this, Jacob taught all of his descendants for eternity. One of the most powerful lessons in Jewish history, and maybe, arguably, one of the key points that has contributed to our resilience and our growth throughout millennia. Jacob said, when you face adversity in life, it's insufficient just to get rid of it. When you face challenges, when you face obstacles, setbacks, difficulties, don't only, don't only try to overcome your hurdles and get back to the place where you were before, prior to the onset of these setbacks. You know why? Because if that's all that happens, what was the purpose? What was the meaning? Why would a loving God put you in this situation if the entire purpose is just to get back to your state of mind before the onset of this difficult situation? Jacob taught the Jewish people. He said, after a battle, after you find yourself entangled with any challenge from within or from without, you must look at your adversary in his or her eyes. And you have to say these words, I will not let you go until you bless me. I don't only want you to get out of my life. I want to make sure that I will come out of this encounter more blessed, more wise, more deep, more authentic, more raw, more honest, more loving, more perceptive, and more connected to truth. Yes, nobody asks for challenges, but when I do encounter them, when I do experience pain in my life, whether it's pain from an internal situation, or pain because of my relationships, or pain for any other reason, may it be financial, psychological, emotional, social, mental, spiritual, biological, etc. It's not enough, Jacob says, to try to ease it. Of course, everyone should want, we all want to be comfortable and everybody should be blessed only with comfort and prosperity and the elimination of all pain. But Jacob says, don't make that mistake of just trying to get rid of it. Make sure that you tune into the opportunity here because every challenge is an opportunity for extraordinary self-awareness and extraordinary growth. I will not let you go until I emerge from this much more blessed. And that's why throughout Jewish history, whenever the Jewish people faced a crisis of any sort, there was something magical that occurred. And that is, they not only waited for the crisis to pass and we go back to normal. No, they knew that if this crisis came along, it's an impetus. It must become a catalyst for unprecedented transformation. I will not let you leave me until I will not emerge more blessed. So to, together with the pain, and the empathy, and the sensitivity, and the brokenness and the sadness, they made sure to turn every trial and every crisis into a springboard for transformation, for metamorphosis, for renewal, and for rebirth. And you and I must do the same in our lives. And the same was true with every crisis, including the pandemic of coronavirus. The pain of it is obvious. Where I live, in my neck of the woods, in my community here, the effect was catastrophic. In terms of death and illness, families that were broken, loved ones taken away. Very, very sad. People are grieving, people who are very close to me. I lost a first cousin, a very young, a young man in his 30s. I lost friends, I lost teachers, I lost neighbors. And yet, as Jacob, we say, I will not let you go until we come out more blessed. And this remained my feeling throughout. It remains my feeling today. And that's why it was so disturbing that as the pandemic slowly comes to an end, as the curve seems to have been flattened, at least to some degree, as normalcy comes back 
to many uh, people's lives, at least again, to some degree, there's still so much uncertainty. And here, things are still pretty much on lockdown in terms of schools and summer camps, etc. But as the pandemic seemed to be coming to an end, these riots in America that were sparked really shook up the country. And they're very sad, they're scary, they're scary. Most importantly, it challenges us to ask very profound questions. And some of those questions and answers I want to present now in the remainder of my talk. <laughs> you see, perhaps, perhaps, maybe I'm being a, <laughs> a very optimistic Jew, but that's what we do for a living. We live by hope, not naivete, but hope. So I'm going to express our hope, our hopes. This too, what's going on now, the unrest, civil unrest in the United States of America is also a tremendous challenge. But like every challenge, it's an opportunity, an opportunity to allow us all, Jews and non-Jews, blacks and whites, to emerge more blessed, more connected, more loving, and more deep. A few very interesting things happened here, and they should all be mentioned, and I think it's an important narrative. Number one, millions of people were protesting the fact that one man was not allowed to breathe that a police officer brutally held his knee down on Floyd's neck for more than eight minutes, close to nine minutes, as a result of which he tragically died. And all the signs, you know, let me breathe, let me breathe. One man could not breathe. And that in itself is very significant because after thousands of years, when human life was often disregarded, the fact that there should be such a unified outcry for the one life is very powerful demonstration. Now, I know there is cynicism here. Some people argue, and I'm not, this is a very sensitive debate. Some people say, oh, you think if a black police officer would have killed them, there would have been the same outrage? Please, there would have never been the same outrage. It happened to be a white police officer. I'm not in that business of analyzing these types of things. This is, for, this is above my pay grade. But one thing is sure, one thing we know, every person was created in the image of God. And when a person dies, person is killed, that touches the human soul in its purest place. The Mishnah says in the ethics of our fathers, Chaviv Adam Shanivra B'Tselem, every person is beloved because they were created by the image of God. That includes blacks and whites, people of every ethnic group and race. The Mishnah teaches in Sanhedrin 37 that all of us come from Adam and Eve, all of us. No one of the human race is an exception. And the Talmud says there, the reason for this is that no human being should ever turn to another human being and say, like we used to say in school, my tati is stronger than your tati. My daddy is more powerful than your daddy. The Mishnah says this 2,000 years ago. No person should tell another human being, I am superior to you. My father is superior to you. My mother is superior to you. My race, my uh, tribe, my ethnic group, my background, my uh, stream of DNA is somehow superior to you. What do you mean superior? We all come from one source. We all come from the DNA of Adam and Eve, which means on some level, we're all equal. We're all connected. This, the Mishnah says, the Jewish courts would sell, would teach and inculcate into the mind of every witness when it came to capital crimes. They would explain to this witness, understand the value of life created in the image of God to destroy one soul is to destroy a world. And to save one soul is to save a world. So thousands of years ago, when Rome was infatuated by its gladiators and its spectacles in the Colosseums, 
filled with the entertainment of murdering and slashing the throats of slaves and prisoners or people of all sorts. The Jewish people, a persecuted minority, were teaching their children that we are all carved in the image of God, that we are all connected with each other, that ultimately racism is not just wrong, but it's a lie. And that's key. Not, not just not politically correct. It's not nice. You're going to lose your job. It's a lie. It's fundamentally wrong. Because if we're all in the image of God, then each one of us has our own unique contribution to make. So the alarm over the loss of a person's life, especially in such a horrible way, is in itself a blessing. But there's another element that came out here. And this is also important to emphasize. And by the way, I just want to say something, and that is, you'll forgive me for not being politically correct, and I'm not going to tell you that George Floyd was a saint. He was no saint. Unfortunately, he was a criminal. He sat for years in prison. He held a woman at gunpoint, a pregnant woman at gunpoint while her home was being robbed. And I think it's intellectually dishonest to turn somebody who had a very bad criminal record into a a saint, but that's not so relevant to the discussion, but it's important to mention that because we don't help anybody by distorting reality. This man did not behave in the best way. This man was a criminal, but still nobody deserves to die in such a way. And people have to be held to the standards of law. Nobody's above the law, including police. And a police officer who behaves this way has to be brought to justice. There's no question about that. But one should not confuse the facts and turn somebody whose life was not lived in the ideal, moral, and loving way into, you know, this greatest holy martyr who died uh, protecting human dignity and human race. It was a great tragedy. People should be brought to justice, whoever was involved. But we also have to remember that he was a criminal, and I think it's important for honesty's sake. But there's something else I think that is so critical. And that has to do with the history of the black community and in many ways, the history of the Jewish community. Our black brothers and sisters have suffered terribly. There's no question, for those of you who know the history of the United States of America, hundreds of years ago, the slavery, slavery that they endured was not just bad, it was horrific. The abuse, the rape, the lynching, the beatings, the torture, the deaths, ripping away, tearing away children from their mothers and their fathers. The institution of slavery destroyed culture. It destroyed families. It undermined any sense of cohesion and it robbed the blacks from those aspects that we can all consider the most cherished items of being a human being and cherished rights of being a human being. And they were literally deprived. And it's important to know it. It's important to learn about it. It's important to learn from it. It's important, as we say by Jews, to make sure that never again. But there's something else important. And that is we do not help anybody in the black community by turning them into eternal victims. Just like we cannot help any Jew by turning him or her into an eternal victim. The Jews, unfortunately, have been accustomed to savage persecution. And we have one day a year, it's called Tisha B'Av. We fast, we cry, we mourn, we eat ashes before the fast day, we sit on the floor, we sob, we read lamentations, and we remember all the persecution. Once a year, we eat bitter herbs. We pour out wine from our cup. And we cry for our past. But what do we do the day after Tisha B'Av? We start dancing. Because we know that our strength lies in building a beautiful future, in building a beautiful world, and bringing light to the world. Is it important to remember the past? Of course it's important to remember the past. Those who don't remember the past oblivious to history, as the famous saying says, the famous saying goes, could be in a position where they repeat it or they allow it to be repeated. It's very important to remember the past, but never 
to become a victim to the past and define yourself by it. The defining narrative of the Jewish people is not that we were hated over millennia, even though it's true, and it's still true. I don't have to tell you about the dangers of anti-Semitism, even in Australia, never mind in the United States, never mind in Europe, never mind in the Middle East. But that's not the defining narrative of Israel or of the Jewish people. The defining narrative of Israel and the Jewish people is that we're marching towards Mashiach. We're marching towards redemption. The defining narrative of the Jewish people is the words of Jacob, I will not let you, my challenge, go until you do not bless me. The defining narrative of a human being must be your ability to triumph over your adversity internally and externally and turn your life into a blessing. And a challenge is there to make you more aware, more honest, more wise, more divine, more truthful, more deep, more perceptive, more pure, more clean, more sacred, and more in touch with the core of all reality, which we call Kedusha, holiness. That's the purpose. And this is where Jews the world over must serve as loving friends and mentors to our brothers and sisters in the black community and all communities as a nation that has been around for 4,000 years, close to 4,000 years. And if you count Adam, it's almost 6,000 years. We can share with the world our legacy and our secret. God shows the Jewish people to be moral teachers to all of his children. God shows us to be able to help every person and see that each person was chosen by God in his or her own unique and inimitable way to become an ambassador of love and light and hope and wisdom and truth and healing and redemption. So this is an opportunity to seize. It's an extraordinary opportunity that we ought not to forfeit to be able to become the voice that we were supposed to be always the moral voice in the conversation of mankind, the voice that motivates, inspires, empowers every individual and every human being, individually and collectively, to be able to live up to the best version of what it means to be a human being, to be able to transcend obstacles and to be able to discover our inimitable, our infinite power, because every person, if we're created in the image of God at his or her core, has a sense of invincibility. There is something about you, about me, about us that is indestructible. There is an inner core that despite abuse and despite trauma and despite mental illness and despite personality disorder and despite challenges in life which are genuine, there's a part in you and in me, as Tanya says, which is a piece of God. And because of that at your core, you're infinite and you have resources that are infinite. There is a joy and an optimism and a hope and a strength and an unshakable, indestructible core that nobody and nothing can take away. And when you allow yourself to be aligned every morning with that core, the sky is the limit. Not because I don't have wounds and not because I don't have problems and not because I don't have challenges and not because I didn't make mistakes, but because I can choose to listen to the voice in me that speaks of my alignment with infinity, my alignment with truth, my alignment with God, and my alignment with a self that is essentially one with the entire cosmos, because all of us are a manifestation of God's light in this world. And therefore, when there's such unrest in America, it's a wake-up call, not just a distraction, it's a wake-up call to be able to share a much deeper connection, a much deeper conversation. I tell my Black brothers and sisters and friends, I say, listen, I'm not the expert. I'm not a sociologist, and I'm not the expert of how much racism there is. Thank God, the home where I grew up in, the community I grew up in, the values that I learned, never did we ever learn that you judge a person based on the color of their skin, that a person should be seen as superior or inferior based on the color of their skin. It's anathema. It's antithetical to everything that Judaism represents. As I quoted a few minutes ago, the Mishnah in Sanhedrin 37, 
how much vestiges of racism and bigotry there's in the United States of America, I don't know. I believe that many, many Americans uh, agree, agree to this, that having your uh, a police officer's knee on a man's neck for eight minutes and 46, minutes, 46 seconds is absolutely wrong, and that looting is absolutely wrong. And this, I turn to them and I say, teach your children that they can do better, that God expects something from us, that looting is not good for them, it's not good for the world, it's not what God wants from you. There's so much potential in you for goodness, there's so much potential in you for growth. Don't define the narrative of your life as one of negativity and trauma. Define the narrative of your life as one of potential growth, awareness, transformation, and to become an ambassador of goodness and kindness. This, my friends, is the great role and historic opportunity of the Jewish community today, wherever you are in the world, and never underestimate your power of influence. We sometimes think of ourselves as small, as insignificant, as worthless. Who am I? What can I do already? I'm somewhere in my little shtetl in Australia, very far from the rest of the world. I worry about my own issues and you know, local Australian concerns. But if coronavirus has taught us something, it's that what? That's a false narrative of life. An invisible virus the size of 125 nanometers that you can't see with your naked eye has literally changed the world. One man in China sneezes and everybody is affected. We all can hear the sneeze. The sneeze vibrates through the atmosphere of our planet in very dramatic ways, months and months later. That's why it's called COVID-19. Remember, it began 2019, not 2020. If this is true with a virus, how much more powerful is this when it comes to goodness, morality, kindness, holiness? Every single person can make an incredible difference, but there's one condition. You have to realize who you are. You have to look in the mirror every morning and say, as we say every morning in our prayers, the soul that you have given me is a piece of light. If the doors of perception were cleansed, you would appear for who you really are, a piece of infinity. You are light. You are radiance. You can light up yourself your home, your marriage, your family, your community, the Jewish people in the world. You'll say, me? You know who I am. I have this issue, that issue, that issue. I also have those issues or different issues. We all have issues. That's why we have become therapists, so we go to therapy. One of the three. Somebody asked me, what's the difference between a psychotic, an erotic, and a psychiatrist? So I told them the psychotic builds castles in the air and the neurotic lives in those castles, and the psychiatrist collects the rent from both of them. Okay. We all have in ourselves psychosis, we have in ourselves neurosis, you can ask Dr. Freud, and we all have within ourselves the psychiatrist, either we're becoming one or we go to one or we should go to one, or the psychologist or the therapist. We know that, but I have to ask myself every morning, with who will I allow in my core? Will I allow myself just to hear the voices that undermine me and tell me how bad and ruined and wounded I am? or I will respect those voices, make space for them, give them the honor they deserve, the attention they deserve, and really they could teach me usually a lot about myself. But remember that my core is invincible. It's indestructible. It's a piece of Hashem. It's I am an ambassador of God in this world. I'm a unique ambassador sent down by the creator of the world to be his representative an ambassador, as I said, of love and light and hope and healing and wisdom and truth and redemption. And my dearest friends, one of the hallmarks of all the riots and demonstrations in America is I also can't breathe. George Floyd couldn't breathe. I also can't breathe. Let me breathe. Take your knee off my neck so I could breathe. Let me breathe. I find it very interesting because the coronavirus, COVID-19, attacks the lungs. As you know, every virus comes into the body, and the way it's successful is it abducts a host healthy cell, and then it uses that cell to be able to replicate itself. 
first in the hundreds, then in the thousands, and then in the millions, and then in the billions, and sometimes in the trillions. And in this case, the coronavirus attacks the lungs to the point that very often the person has respiratory problems. They can't breathe, can't breathe. And then as this corona is ending in America, there's this whole awareness and this whole consciousness and all of these riots and revolutions and demonstrations. Let me breathe, I can't breathe. Allow me, based on the words of the Baal Shem Tev, that everything is by providence to teach us a very profound lesson as well. And that is, it is so important to allow yourself to breathe, and it's so important to allow others to breathe. And I want to explain to you what I mean and conclude with these comments, and then we'll open up the floor to some questions. The word neshama, soul, comes from the word neshima, which means breath. Breath, breathing, is that cycle which God created, that incredible cycle which I don't even realize is happening. We do it instinctively where the oxygen is inhaled by my body. And that oxygen is dispatched through the red blood cells, 37 trillion blood cells throughout the living organism, bringing oxygen to every single part of the body. When that is interrupted, the person simply cannot live because when the blood and the cells don't have the oxygen, they can't survive. And therefore, neshama, soul, is so associated with the word neshima, which is breath. We say in the morning prayers from Psalms, every soul praises God. And the Midrash says, kol neshama means kol neshima. For every breath you take, you should say thank you. Don't take for granted the fact that you can breathe, that we can breathe, that that ear is not obstructed. But you know, there's physical ear and there's also spiritual oxygen. And just as it is critical to breathe in physical oxygen, it is critical to breathe in spiritual oxygen. What is the spiritual oxygen of the Jewish people? It's Torah. When I learn, I fill my system with oxygen. It allows me to breathe, it allows me to live, it allows me to grow, it allows me to be motivated, empowered, and inspired. That is the gift of learning in Jewish life. It has sustained us for millennia, and it still sustains us today in 2020. Use this opportunity to fill your life with oxygen. And finally, finally, just a few decades ago, the great Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous speech, I have a dream. And the dream consisted of a world in which people are not judged by the color of their skin, but as he put it, by their character, by their actions, by their behavior. A world in which prejudice and bigotry is supplanted by love, trust, and connectivity. Those dreams for many people, seem to have been shattered. Some would say the dream turned into a nightmare. And many would say that the dream never came to fruition. Look at what's happening in the United States of America. I am not so pessimistic. I believe, as I told you before, that there is tremendous opportunity for awareness and growth. I wish the Black community would have more mentorship and leadership to be able to reach to the heart of its youth and its young and tell them who they really are and what they're really capable of and how looting is evil and immoral and they should not become victims to anything but their highest angels, even if there is still sometimes brutality on the part of policemen. Also important, as I told you, never to generalize and to start believing that every policeman is brutal, it's unfair, it's unjust. Hundreds of thousands of them stand in line of fire to protect black children and white children, communities and schools and synagogues, and we have to be grateful. But now I wanna ask you the question, what about your dreams? Each and every one of us has dreams. I have a dream. You have a dream. I know that you have a dream. If you're Jewish, you certainly have a dream. And if you're Jewish, probably not one dream, but 50 dreams, maybe 50,000 dreams. A Jew wakes up every day with a dream. But you know what happens? 
life's pressures and circumstances sometimes kill our dreams. They stifle our dreams. They repress our dreams. Or they just make us so exhausted. You don't have mental space for dreams. You're trying to survive, trying to make ends meet, pay your mortgage, cover tuition, buy food, deal with your mental health, with your physical health. Who has time for dreams? Dream on and move on. But here is where the verse says in Psalms, Don't touch my Mashiach. So the Talmud says in Shabbos 119, Don't touch my Mashiach. God says, Don't touch my anointed ones. These are the little children. And there's one beautiful interpretation. And that is as follows. When we are children, we dream of Mashiach. We dream either I'm going to be Mashiach or I'm going to bring Mashiach. Either I'm going to change the world myself or I'll help some other people change the world. But that's the dream that every Jewish mother somehow inculcates into the heart of her child. I want you to be Mr. Success Story or Mrs. Success Story. You will either be the Messiah or you're going to bring the Messiah or at least in the process make a lot, a lot of money so good things can happen. That's what every Jewish child dreams of in one way or another, consciously or unconsciously. But very often as I grow into adulthood, I let go of that because, you know, we don't have that idealism anymore and that freedom anymore. Ultimately, life challenges me and I just have to behave and try to, you know, make a living and do the best I can. So the Talmud says, Even when you grow up, Never, ever allow the inner child in you, the inner dreamer in you, to be neutralized, to be contaminated, to be marginalized, to be repressed, or to die. Never allow the inner child in you, that curious, inquisitive, eager, uninhibited, infinite personality, die. Never allow that dream inside of you to change the world to be taken away from you. Yes, you may have a lot of pressures and the vicissitudes of life are not always easy to navigate and handle and so forth, but allow that inner child to dream big. Don't damage, don't dampen, don't compromise that inner spark of Mashiach in you, that inner light in you, which knows that you have the ability to make a real difference, to change the world in your own way, because each and every one of us has our sphere of influence. Don't allow the pressures of life, as great as they may be, to stifle your idealism, to crush your dreams, to numb your passions, to silence your creativity, and to rob you from your innermost potential to be that great divine ambassador of love, light, hope, healing, and redemption. Thank you very, very much. Thank you so much, Rabbi. You've given us so much to think about. And the idea of looking at adversary in his eyes and saying, I will not let you go until you bless me is one that we've already seen tonight with Nissan Black. And that was actually how he started his journey into um, self-discovery and, and the path to Judaism when that actually happened with his rap rival. Now, we have a lot of questions. Um, if I can ask you a couple and then the rest, maybe we can put on Facebook. What would you say, um, I have a question that's come in that said, what would you say to people that say the BLM movement is anti-Semitic? There's no question that there are elements of anti-Semitism that have creeped into it. There's absolutely no question and it is horrific. It is scandalous. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's horrible. And they have to be called out on it because what they're doing is they're taking, first of all, there's many innocent people who mean well, and they're taking a cause that has within it such beautiful components of human camaraderie and really poisoning it with the venom of anti-Semitism. So there is no question that there are elements of anti-Semitism in it. And they must be exposed because the people who are supporting that are not realizing that by doing that, they're ultimately delegitimizing the voice of their organization. And we see this over and over again, how this story with George Floyd suddenly by some turned into a rhetoric against Israel. Suddenly we're hearing that the American police officers are trained by the Israelis of how to handle Arab protesters. And suddenly we have these, all these comparisons, how Israel is dedicated 
to squash and destroy the lives of the Palestinians, just as the whites in America want to do with the blacks. So this is rhetoric that's unforgivable, the blood libels, the lies and the falsehoods. And I think it's important to seize every opportunity to be able to call them out on this and make them realize that as long as they continue such types of lies, no decent person will want to join it. They are ultimately undermining their own efforts in the greatest way. Now, you've said that every challenge has an opportunity to emerge more blessed, more loving, and more deeply connected. Now, hopefully the senseless murder of George Floyd and then the further distraction and further senseless murders of people like David Dorn will lead to some kind of opportunity. What transformations do you expect for the USA after coronavirus and after the riots that will emerge as a stronger, more united country? How do you think that's happening? I think that depends on you and me and all of us. But I think the conversation should change where people should really be able to cut each other slack respect each other more, realize how interdependent and interconnected we are. And I think there is a tremendous opportunity for this because I think millions and billions of people are very open to this message. You know, I took a walk a few weeks ago when everything was still on lockdown. And uh, I saw two strangers who were sitting in the garden of their home, schmoozing. And I say strangers because I didn't know who they were. And I had this urge in me. I said, hi. I said, hi, how are you? And, uh, you know, in New York, it's not Australia. <laughs> in New York, you're not allowed to be too friendly. People are more uptight. So the person I was walking with says to me, you know them? I say, no. She says, so why are you saying hi to them? And then I said, you know, in a world that's unified, we will all say hi to each other because they're not strangers, they're brothers and sisters. Even if I don't know them, if I see my brother, will I say hi? If I see my aunt, will I say hi? Of course, I'm gonna say hi to them. I wanna start living in a world that reflects this type of consciousness. And I think that if we work on it, we have to be proactive and introduce that vocabulary. It can have a tremendous impact to be able to be here for people, to be able to respect people, you know? Every person was created in God's image. And what that means practically is there's a mitzvah to love God and a mitzvah to be in awe of God. And that means that with every single person created in the image of God, there is something about them that I could love. And there's something about them that I have to stand in awe of. Doesn't mean I agree with everything. It doesn't mean we have all the same hobbies or appetites or interests or personality traits. It doesn't mean that every single person becomes my best friend and I could reveal all my secrets, but it does mean every person has something which I can love and every person has something which I can be in awe of. And if I cannot discover that, it means I am not in touch with the image of the divine in them because I'm not in touch with the image of the divine within me. And I think that's where we begin. Let's begin with that consciousness that every single person I meet, relative or stranger, acquaintance or close friend, somebody in my circle or out of my circle, there's something I can love and there's something I can be in awe of. And especially when it comes to your own kin and your own family and your own marriages and your own relationships, I think this is an opportunity to once again prioritize our personal relationships with our loved ones. Too many distractions have taken us away from the vortex of life into the peripherals of life. We have become swept away by different causes of stress and anxiety and really taken us away from the core values of life, which from a Jewish perspective are always my spiritual relationship with God, my spiritual relationship with myself, my marriage, my relationship with my children, my relationship with my community, and my relationship really with the purpose of my life. And I think this, this crisis that we have seen gives us all an opportunity to be able to start a new conversation. And I'm telling you, when you start speaking this vocabulary, people will respond to you. You'll be able to have tremendous, tremendous influence in the positive because the world is ripe for this. We need real spiritual and intellectual unequivocal leadership. What we're seeing in America is 
horrible. But you know what else we're seeing? We're seeing negativity emerging to the fore and it's begging, it's begging for leadership to stand up and say, people, we can do much better. We can create a different narrative for our lives. This is really what is being asked for, what is being pleaded for. And this is where I think our responsibility comes in. Amazing. Well, let's hope that we can take those challenges and emerge a stronger and, and happier and better and more connected, loving world. Like you said, thank you so, so much for joining us. And thank you for getting up early. I have so many more questions, which unfortunately we don't have time to answer, but hopefully we'll be able to answer on Facebook because there's a lot of people that want to ask you a lot of different things. And we hope that you'll be in Australia soon once this is all over, hopefully, and we can spend more time all together. And next week, if everyone would like to join, there's a great panel. We have a lot of um, great information about relationships, about raising children, different special needs children, different, um, whether you can choose the sex of your child and many other modern questions. So I look forward to seeing everyone next week. And Rabbi, I hope to see you in Australia very soon, but I will be on your website listening to all your different talks, which are amazing in the meantime. Thank you. Thank you. My love and blessings to all of you. Chazak, chazak. And thank you for joining us. It's been my privilege. Stay well, stay healthy. And uh, may Sinai down under go from strength to strength with extraordinary success. Thank, thank you. you. Have a wonderful day. We hope to see you here again bye -bye. very, very bye -bye. soon. Bye. <laughs>